given my experience, given my age, given the field I'm in, are my qualifications within the expected range or are they severely below or, or are my qualifications much higher than what is expected? If so, I may have trouble convincing an employer that I'm a good candidate for the job. Why is being overqualified for a sought-after job at a desirable workplace seen as a drawback? When job hunting, people give all kinds of obvious and not-so-obvious signals about their capabilities and their fit for an organization. In their resumes and in their job interviews, they'll highlight work experience, education, skills, and in general, try to prove their worth in that particular corner of the labor market. What happens when even the most qualified job applicants do everything right but end up seeming overqualified anyway? Despite having prestigious educations and impressive work credentials, these candidates get turned down by hiring managers, often before they even get an interview. Are they to blame for striving too much? Or are prospective employers biased against overachievers? Turns out it's a bit more complicated than that. Professor Roman Galperin at the McGill Des Hotel Faculty of Management and his co-researchers ran experimental studies to figure out what hiring managers really thought about these exceptionally qualified job candidates. They found that all those signals that candidates give about their capability for a job are linked to hiring managers' perceptions of commitment, namely the concern that overqualified candidates are a flight risk. Delve talked to Roman Galperin about why this is what people can do about it when navigating the labor market, and why prospective employers should think again about these overqualified, highly knowledgeable job seekers, especially in a time when AI technologies are increasingly applied in the workplace. Welcome to the Delve Podcast, Professor Galperin. The labor market has clearly changed over the past few years since the COVID pandemic began, but we're still facing changes to how people look for jobs, how they do their jobs, and how often and why they change jobs. We've all heard about people being overqualified for a job. That's something that's been going on for many, many years. But your research shows that that means different things to different employers. At the same time, some job applicants don't feel that they're overqualified, even if a potential employer perceives them that way during an interview or on their resume. Why was it important for you to investigate this phenomenon within the labor market and to look deeper into its impact on both potential employers and employees? The idea for this project emerged when my co-author on this paper, Oliver Hall, and I were in a graduate program at MIT, and we were close to graduation, and we were facing the prospect of uh, you know, looking for a job and not knowing whether we're going to get it or not. And so one of the well-known factoids in academia is that if you graduate from uh, what is considered an elite program, so I'm going to use it in quotes, but from a very prestigious program, then your prospects on job market are different from those who graduate from a solid university, but not necessarily an elite university. And the prospects are you have either all or nothing. So you either get a job at a top university in a prestigious department, or you get no job at all. It really doesn't seem to make sense. If someone graduates from a good program and has achieved a master's degree or a PhD, shouldn't they be in demand in the relevant job market? Shouldn't they be first pick? We were talking about this and trying to figure out why would this be the case. And around that time, uh, there were several articles on the labor market for lawyers. So it seems to have been a crisis in lawyers finding jobs in the U.S. specifically. And they seem to have a very similar pattern. So graduates from top law schools, you know, some of them would find jobs in big law firms. And then a lot of them would end up 
with no job at all. And so the, these newspapers would portray these graduates with hundreds of thousands of dollars in debt who are they're contractors for, they, they work in uh, legal sweatshops, essentially. And then, so they, they're freelancing and doing some work that is well below their capability, well below the skills. Again, a similar pattern. You invest in something that increases your skills, and then it's really hard to find a job. And it seemed to be related to this idea that some people are seem to be just too good for whatever job they're applying to. We started thinking about this and developed this into this idea that overqualification is something that most of us have heard about, but we really don't quite know how it works and what it is. As more people have gone on to higher education in the past couple of decades and more are getting master's degrees and PhDs, we've come to understand as a society that the definition of overqualified means both a higher level of experience and a high level of education as well. How did you figure out that employers were equating job candidates' overcapability with their likelihood to be less committed to the job and to the workplace? For this project, we've talked to a lot of people. We reached out through the network. There are four authors uh, on this paper, and among the four of us, we had someone we would know personally, or or some you know a friend of our friend who would have experienced this overqualification problem. And some of us have experienced it from the perspective of the applicant, of the job applicant. So you're applying, and you're too good for the job. You don't hear back. But what was more informative, more important for us, is to hear from some of the hiring managers. So why would they not hire someone who is highly qualified for the job? So as with all research, you first had to figure out the right research question to ask in order for your findings to make sense. Then you talked to people about their experiences of overqualification. What discoveries emerged from those conversations? What emerged were these two themes. And one was that, well, first of all, the finding that anecdotal at that point, that it's not that hiring managers don't look at highly qualified applicants. If you stand out, the application definitely gets attention, but then there is no action on this. So the hiring manager doesn't reach out to this applicant. And the two themes emerge in why they wouldn't do this. One is they're concerned that the person is not going to stay for very long. So they're a flight risk because the job is so much below their perceived level of skills and, and qualifications. And another risk is that even if they stay if the job is too small for them, so to speak, then they will be not as motivated. They may be difficult to manage and direct. And generally speaking, they will not contribute to the mission of the organization as much as someone who would have enough qualifications, but not too much. That really formed the underlying explanation that we then set out to test in the experiments in this paper. Being enough but not too much is a fine line to tread when job hunting. What did you find out about the signals that a person gives, whether in their resume or their job interview, that make them seem overqualified? They, in practice, may mean different things to different people. We uh, approached this a little bit more formally and just thought about what would be the typical credentials, typical work experience that is expected for someone in a position. Usually those things are listed in an ad for the job. It's one thing to check those boxes and be within the ranges that are requested. So the same or slightly more years of experience that they ask for, educational degree of the level that's being It's another thing to be well above those qualifications, those requirements, and that is really where it becomes problematic. So if a job asks for an undergraduate degree and you have a PhD, or if a job uh, asks for five years of experience and you have 20, that's really where it becomes problematic. 
Galperin also points out that while education and experience levels might raise an eyebrow, job titles on resumes matter too. Even with the same level of education and qualifications, if someone has moved up the title ladder into management or the executive level, but are now applying to positions below that, then potential employers will likely wonder why they appear to be taking a big step down in their career. These types of signals in the hiring process are question marks or even doubts in the mind of the hiring manager. They can be strong enough to stop that manager from not only hiring someone, but from even giving them an interview. But that doesn't mean applicants shouldn't try to offer explanations for their overqualifications in a cover letter or even in the resume itself, especially since a lot of screening today is done through automation. We have increasingly smart algorithms that may analyze text. And so even if the manager doesn't read your cover letter, it makes sense to whatever explanations you may have to put them in the the cover letter, because maybe they will be captured by someone on the screening side of this process. Whether AI or a real-life manager reads your cover letter, it will possibly help to include that in your application. In an era when people seem to change jobs more often than in the past, commitment to the job remains important. For one, companies know that it costs them to hire someone, only to lose them quickly. Why are expectations of job commitment so important to organizations, including during the hiring process? I want to say that this is a perennial problem in the reason that we haven't talked about it as much in among researchers of labor markets is not because it hasn't been happening. It's just we haven't noticed it and we haven't paid enough attention to this. So it's always been the case people who hire others to do work for them, they're concerned with both, with their qualifications and with how committed they're going to be to performing the job. But for whatever reason, labor economists, labor sociologists have focused on the qualifications part of this. And so talked a lot about credentials, talked a lot about, uh, researched a lot about uh, human capital and how getting a degree uh, helps or hurts in getting a certain job or in performing a certain job. This in part may be related to the fundamental feature of commitment that it's very difficult to measure. So it's really hard to know how much someone is committed to something. It's really easy to say that you're committed or you will be committed to promise that it's really difficult to check to what extent is this true. And so because of that, because of how difficult it is to measure commitment, researchers have not thought about it as much. And so what we're doing in this project is to bring this question back. This is an important question because it affects how people actually hire others and how people find jobs. And so signals of commitment are important here. What can people who are looking for a job and what can employers, for that matter, learn from this link between overqualification and commitment? Should prospective employees who are overqualified present themselves differently? Is there something more strategic that they should do? Or is this just a larger contextual systemic problem with the labor market in general? I think this applies to both employees and employers. I want to talk about employers a little bit later, but from a job applicant perspective, so if I'm looking for a job, what's important for me to know is how well do my qualifications correspond to someone who's expected to be in this point of my career. So given my experience, given my age, given the field I'm in, are my qualifications within the expected range, or are they severely below, or or are my qualifications much higher than what is expected? If so, I may have trouble convincing the employer that I'm a good candidate for the job. Maybe the simplest way to think about this is, is to question when considering getting another degree or considering getting a credential, maybe uh, some license or some certification in something, it's important to consider that more is not always better in this regard. 
and that if there is concordance between where you are in the career and what kind of qualifications you have, you're in good shape. But if not, if you're considering getting an MBA right after undergraduate, this may not be a good idea because when you're applying for an entry-level job, it's more of a liability. You will need to explain why is it that you're applying with an MBA to an entry-level job. Similarly, if there's a field where most people have a master's degree and you decide to go all the way for a doctorate degree, right? This may seem like a good thing. You will stand out, but maybe you will stand out not in a good way in that you will have to explain yourself. Why is it that you diverted some time toward getting the degree rather than accumulating work experience, for example? With that in mind, we see a lot of people having to get creative about explaining their time spent in graduate programs or law school and other advanced training. They need to show directly how those skills match a job arena that perhaps differs from the one they thought they would be in after they completed all that schooling. From the employer perspective, they're thinking about these skills and qualifications, but are they also thinking about the impact of monetary compensation? Not only on how much they'll have to pay someone with an advanced degree, but how much a higher paycheck could affect someone's commitment to the job. It's hard to say, so compensation is one way to motivate people. It's one way to keep them from leaving. So for example, if you are concerned that someone is a flight risk because they're overqualified for the job, maybe if you pay them enough, they will stay. That's one way to think about it. Another way we thought about this is that this is a way for candidates to signal their commitment is to show that they're giving up money for the organizational mission, for example. So if someone is switching from a for-profit sector to a non-profit sector and they are doing this with uh, loss of income. So they, they're getting paid less in the new job. If this is consistent with the message that they're sending to the employer that they really care about the organizational mission, that may also help with the interpretation of commitment. They, it's okay to be overqualified if you're doing this because you're switching to a job that's more of your calling or maybe something that is consistent with your worldview and you know, from a job that maybe was you weren't very happy in that job or maybe you weren't finding it as meaningful as the new job. Th these are some of the ways in which applicants can help with this problem. That's interesting because there's a rather persistent expectation that the more education you have, the more money you should be able to make. But we know that is not the case for everyone. Looking for a meaningful position is just one thing that throws a wrench in that logic around job commitment. So to go back to the employer perspective again, how do your findings about hiring managers' bias, perception, and stereotyping fit in with research on biases around race, gender, and other diversity markers? Similarly qualified applicants you know, women will experience different, uh, the, the expectations for them will be different by hiring managers, and they will be essentially penalized. But because of these stereotypes, on average, will be perceived as less committed to their careers. Now, when you, they're overqualified, this compensates for this, for this penalty, for this perception. Because if you went out of your way to get an extra degree or, you know, invested in a particular difficult-to-get certification, or professional license, it's, it signals that you're probably committed to your career. And so that, that eliminates this penalty. And so in relative terms, women who are overqualified don't experience as much of a backlash in, in hiring process as, as men do. This is an interesting, somewhat counterintuitive finding, but it speaks to this idea that uh, stereotypes related to social group membership, so to gender, to race and ethnicity, age, sexual orientation, all of these categories that we care about, those stereotypes apply in the context of 
overqualification because they enter into this calculation of how well someone's qualifications and commitment will fit with the requirements and the goals of the organization that's hiring a person. Overqualification becomes a kind of calculation or logic puzzle that hiring managers are doing spur of the moment. They're weighing education and experience, everything on a person's resume, as well as their social and cultural background. How could the impacts of your findings affect the way hiring managers do their job? Could they help hiring managers be more objective? I think the findings may benefit hiring managers in in a simple way. The simple advice would be to give those applications that seem to be overqualified, give them a second look and try to find out why is this person applying. The concerns may well apply. Maybe this person is a flight risk. Maybe they apply just because it's easy to apply. Maybe they didn't even see the job description or didn't read it carefully. It's possible. But it's also possible that you have an opportunity of hiring someone who is exceptionally highly qualified at a fraction of the cost that otherwise you would incur as as an organization. And so this is especially beneficial for those organizations that are constrained in terms of how much they can pay. So startups uh, are in a good position to try to benefit from this problem and fix it along the way in some way because people who experience overqualification, they need a job. Nonprofit organizations, uh, mission-driven organizations often are constrained in terms of how much they can pay. And so for them, the lesson, again, is give that overqualified application a second look and try to find out why this person wants to work here. We talked a bit about algorithms earlier. How do these findings apply to future directions for the hiring process, such as refining algorithms and AI tools that are used in hiring and other areas of human resources? I want to say maybe two trends are apparent and they're linked, right? One is that a lot of hiring is done by algorithms nowadays, or at least a lot of screening, not necessarily hiring, but screening of the applications. And because algorithms tend to mimic the logic of human decision-making, some of the errors and some of the biases, as we well know, may make their way into the algorithm. But they're also different. They're also not humans. And so there's opportunity in that difference, in in setting the rules for the algorithm in a more open, maybe a little bit stricter way, less biased way. There's opportunity to benefit from these inefficiencies in hiring that are related to overqualification or perception of overqualification. A second related point is that we are, I think, in the midst of experiencing a true AI revolution. We've talked about this for several years now, but now it is apparent that AI can be a useful tool, and especially in knowledge-intensive jobs. And so if we imagine the evolution of knowledge-intensive jobs into those that are AI-assisted jobs, it's possible that someone who seemed overqualified for the job yesterday today will be just the right fit. I think handling different combination of tasks, like handling different nature of the job that is related to the use of AI in in many jobs, this extra understanding is going to require some skills that are difficult to find. And so people who are overqualified may actually be just the right fit. While the conundrum of overqualification for a job has been around for years, the advances in AI technology have complicated it even further. This really speaks to how AI is affecting work in general, how people do their jobs, how people think about their occupational identity, how the labor market is changing. Technology has always had a major impact on the labor market and on entire industries for that matter, but it's kind of heartening to hear that someone with a PhD who may have been considered overqualified before may now be in demand for the AI applications of their knowledge base skills. 
I mean, there are two ways to slice it, right? One would be that it solves the problem of overqualification. Another one is that we're experiencing another cycle of inflation in degrees. So the credential inflation has been evident throughout the 20th century when some of the entry-level jobs that it used to be that it's okay to have a high school diploma to do those jobs. And then toward the end of the century, of the last century, uh, most of those jobs required a bachelor's degree. And so now it's moving on to graduate degrees slowly. And it's possible that the education cycle is getting longer because the jobs are getting more complex. That could be a good thing for those who have embarked on the education, but it could also be something that we should be careful with in terms of its impact on people who who are unable or do not want to pursue longer education. Another aspect of that is one of the long-standing visions for AI, that these tools would allow people to work less or not at all. Right now, as you pointed out, AI is changing and will continue to change how we work. And that deeply affects the role of work in our lives, the labor market, and society in general. I think a positive way to see it is that if we look back at the Industrial Revolution, the sentiment that was voiced around that time, around the turn of the previous century, was very similar to what we hear about AI, right? Is that automation is going to replace everyone and all the jobs are going away. And what happened instead is that the jobs have changed. And so there were new jobs that didn't exist before. Some of the jobs, some of the old jobs went away, it's true, but a lot more new jobs have been created. And what those jobs required is higher level of knowledge and higher level of education. And so in some sense, we can make a direct link between change in the technologies during the industrialization and the massive growth in higher education. This trend may just continue with the change in the nature of jobs that is related to the introduction of tools like AI. It is possible that the education sector will develop as well. And so what is considered exceptional now will be normal very soon in terms of the level of degrees that we expect people to have. If automation makes our lives easier and if AI makes our lives easier, great. It maybe it allows us to focus on other tasks. That's a hopeful sentiment. It's also a hopeful sentiment that nothing is constant but change. We can think about the Industrial Revolution, more access to education, the advent of the personal computer and home internet. We can even think about the invention of the dishwasher and washing machine, which arguably increased women's participation in the workforce by reducing the domestic tasks expected of them. And it gave them time for other activities like work. These technological changes changed the labor market. This is a very optimistic view, of course. Maybe there is no other choice for us but to embrace the most optimistic views that that we can uh, have. But uh, an optimistic view is that something similar may happen with AI and we'll, we'll have more participation in the labor market. And that will, again, push the qualifications expected for the job upward. And so getting back to the same idea, people who are seem overqualified now will not be overqualified tomorrow with the same level of qualifications. And they'll then be able to show their commitment in one way or another in different ways once again. That's a positive note to end on. Thank you for talking with Delve about your research, Professor Galperin. Our guest today on the Delve podcast was McGill Desotel Faculty of Management Professor Roman Galperin, discussing his recent research on the links between overqualification and commitment in an ever-changing labor market. You can find out more about Professor Galperin's research on delve.mcgill.ca. Thank you for listening to the Delve podcast, produced by Delve, the thought leadership platform of the Desotel Faculty of Management at McGill University. You can follow Delve McGill on Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, and Instagram, and subscribe to the Delve McGill podcast on your favorite podcasting app.